Hi, everyone, and welcome to our latest edition of the Dovetail Podcast with Karen and Courtney. I'm Courtney Hawley. And I'm Karen Gonzalez. So, Karen, how were your holidays? They were great. Um, I did get a little sick beforehand, got a really, really bad stomach flu, but thankfully I was recovered by the time the Christmas holidays started and got to spend some time with my family. So yeah, it was good. It was very chill, very calm. So yeah, pretty good. How about yours? How, how did your holidays go? Mine was good too. My daughter had a bit of a stomach flu and I was really nervous that she would still be too sick to fly to go see her grandparents, but it turned out to be a fast thing. So that was good. And the holidays were really, really nice. I just really took advantage of family and people from my church and tried to unplug a little bit. My manuscript was due at the end of the year. And so I finished that before I went to visit my parents. So that was a huge weight off my shoulders. I almost let it linger till I got back and my husband said, no, like, why don't you just push to get it done? Because, you know, then it'll be, you know, off your plate. And I'm really glad that I listened. So that was a huge accomplishment. But all in all, yeah, the holidays were really nice. I made sure that I took it easy this year. Good. I think it is a, a time where we can push ourselves too hard and end up sort of needing a vacation from our holiday break, you know. So there's so much pressure and expectation around the holidays that they're going to be joyful and warm and, you know, that I can sometimes I think that just sets us up. That's really true. And like needing a vacation from a vacation, that's just so funny that we do things like that. Like we uh, hosted a brunch for our church group for New Year's Day and I like didn't really cook one thing. <laughs> I said to myself, I had just gotten back from traveling and I did everything that could just be set out nicely and like baked goods and like some ham and stuff like that. Cause <laughs> in the past I would say, Oh, you know, I need to offer something homemade, but you know what? It was just the fact that we were getting together and everyone likes donuts. So that's what you get. <laughs> oh, I love that. Brunch is one of like my favorite things. <laughs> I know. I know. I love brunch and brunch is really easy to host. I think people sometimes will get intimidated by the idea of a dinner party, but brunch has always gone well for me and people seem to like it and people always bring a casserole and that sort of thing. And then it frees up your day. You can spend a little time with your friends and then still fit something in. So yeah, brunch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's always so like, it feels all celebratory and festive to me because there's alcohol usually and yeah <laughs> yeah there's a really fun like quintessential brunch place here in charlotte that um has a 90s hip-hop theme and it's it's so funny it's like really kind of foodie hipster egg dishes with warren g quotes on the menu and stuff like that but i always feel like i kind of get to escape and go be a you know urban carefree adult when I go to brunch. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Great. Well, in light of the election and its aftermath and the fact that we have a brand new year, I, do, I love when uh, Anna Bryn Gable says in the book, today is a new day with no mistakes in it. With no mistakes in it. I love that too. <laughs> it's a new year with no mistakes in it. So we're going to discuss today um, self-care and the importance of self-care. And so first we want to start out by just discussing like what is self-care? 
Like how do you define that? So Courtney, what does that mean to you? For me, self-care is remembering to prioritize some of the things that I need to keep myself going. And that can be as simple as getting a little extra sleep, spending a little more time alone, um, and even kind of being cognizant of treating myself well, like deciding to get into nice pajamas instead of just whatever I find, that sort of thing. But a lot of it really has to do with allowing myself to just be and to check out from the world and feel entitled to do that and not feel guilty, like I'm neglecting my duties of awareness or action or whatever it may be. Um, I'm not sure if that made any sense, but what do you think about self-care? What is, what's your definition? Well, I think I used to think of it as some kind of, you know, luxurious event in a day, you know, something expensive that you do to kind of spoil or pamper yourself. But I think like you, I've come to realize that it's really in the very simple things that we do to just take care of ourselves and be well. You know, we're people of color. We both care a lot about justice and about seeing a more just world. And I think that takes a lot out of people. It takes a lot out of us. We're both doing a lot of creative things too, a lot of writing, which also um, drains us of energy and time and and so I, I feel the same way you do, that self-care is, you know, I think of the scene in um, Eat, Pray, Love, which um, which I know has its lots of privilege around that whole story. But one of the scenes that I love is when she decides she's in Rome to just take care of herself and she goes out and she goes, she buys good food and she cooks a meal at home for herself and she eats alone, but she puts on, you know, something nice and comfortable that she bought just for herself, you know, and she sets a little table. And to me, that's a very simple thing, but it's a really important thing to feed yourself well, to get up and get dressed, to sleep well. And, you know, I tend toward depression and anxiety. So for me, choosing not to sleep or zone out is really part of self-care you know, to be a little bit present to my body. And sometimes that requires exercise or going for a walk. But yeah, something simple that really takes care of my physical body, but also my spirit, my soul. Yeah, absolutely. I agree that it doesn't have to be a massage or like I'm thinking about on um, Parks and Rec when Aziz Ansari's character was like the treat yourself, you remember? <laughs> Like buying yourself, you know, some expensive shoes or whatever it may be. That's not, you know, at least for me, that's not how I look at it. If that's how someone else looks at it, that's fine. But, um, you know, for me, so much of it is internal, um, even more than the external stuff. And I think it's giving myself some permission to self-indulge. Um, there's a quote by Audre Lorde that I like that says, Caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. And I just think there's so much truth in that. A lot of the work that I just did for my book had to do with the fact that Black women have often had this superwoman uh, thing thrust upon them, that they are supposed to go to work and hold it down and speak out and just 
do everything and the kitchen sink and never put themselves first. And so I think that in a way that it is an act of political warfare to say, no, I'm taking the time to build myself back up, you know? And I think that, you know, like online trolls, I think that's something that they try to do. I think that's their aim sometime is to make you, to ruin your day, to make you feel bad. And by fighting back and saying, no, like, that's not going to work. I'm going to treat myself well and love myself even more on purpose is, you know, I, I think a really assertive act. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's a really important thing. And I think that often we can feel selfish in it because it feels like self-indulgence rather than self-preservation. Um, and so I think sometimes, especially, you know, we live in a very active society where people are busy all the time, where people are accomplishing things, where, you know, we admire people who can keep more balls in the air than we can. You know, accomplishing is really admired and respected in our culture. And so caring for yourself, doing something, you know, downtime can feel to people like it's selfish, like it's uh, like they're not being productive, like they're not engaging in the way that they should. And so I do think, like you said, giving ourselves permission to just be, to refresh, replenish our spirits, our physical bodies really is an act of political warfare because we won't be useful for the fight without um, a well-rested body and soul. That's a good way to put it, that we won't be ready for the fight Because sometimes I struggle with my privilege and the fact that I do work at home and uh, have time to take time out to do certain things or that things are relatively good for me. I know I know that the world is sort of in this collective funk and that obviously there's a lot of negative things going on across the globe. And sometimes I feel guilty sitting back and saying, you know, everything is nice for me within my my four little walls um and so letting go of that guilt is important for me because that gets in the way and what my husband tells me is that i need to release that because the fact that i do have privilege allows me to put my energy and my thoughts into this work and put it out into the world and so i need to just be thankful for that and you know, take advantage of the fact that this is the way that I am contributing, that I shouldn't feel guilty that I don't have some of the struggles that I worry about other people having. Right. Yeah, that's true. Like, use it for good. You know, use that space and that privilege. Huh. Yeah, I think that's really important. Something else that I run into with um, self-care, another kind of barrier to self-care is that people often wonder, as, as Christians, is this biblical? Is this something that Christians should do? Doesn't Paul say it's more blessed to give than to receive? So shouldn't we just be giving and giving out and kind of trusting that something will be okay, you know, that it's, it'll work out? What do you think about that? You know, I think that as you know, people living in 21st century America, that that Protestant work ethic is just really intrinsically tied to the way that we think of Christianity. I think that a lot of the the spiritual aspects and the internal aspects and the supernatural aspects about communing with God sometimes get a little diminished in favor of works, doing something good, being a good 
kind of church person. And I think that that really is a mistake. And I think it's something that especially people involved in the church seem to struggle with, that it takes a lot of work to keep churches going. And I think that sometimes we want to feel like we're doing God's work in a very tangible way that other people can see. So we can prove that to ourselves and prove that to others. But I think that if you look biblically, people just as much or if not more are concerned about the time they spend communing with God or honoring God, that sort of sort of thing. I know that you and I talked recently about Jesus in the Gospels and the fact that he was always retreating to go pray. And so obviously that was something that he felt was really important. He was healing people and doing all sorts of things that were necessary and furthering justice and helping the weakest people, but he still made time to pull away. And I think that that's a really sort of key thing to remember as Christians. Definitely. Yeah. I think that for me has been a model. The fact that Jesus himself, who was fully God, fully man, would take time away to go to a lonely place, it says in some translations, to be with his father, sort of be replenished and restored. You know, he was in a culture that's very collective, right? Very communal, surrounded by people all the time, crowds following him, and there's this inner circle of the disciples. And so I can only imagine that these needy people (laughs) gathered around you all the time would require time to refresh, time to replenish. And yeah, that has been a model for me of how important it is um, to get away. And to be refreshed. And I think you brought up something that I hadn't uh, noticed before, but in Song of Solomon, there's this idea of being the keeper of your own vineyard. Can you say more about that? Yes, yes. This jumped out at me because I was looking up the, the verse where the woman speaker in Song of Solomon says that she's black, but she's beautiful, or she's dark, but she's comely, depending on what translation you use. And that's an idea that I was incorporating into some of the stuff that I was writing about. And I found this passage where she says that part of the reason that she's dark is that she's been in the sun, she's keeping other people's vineyard, and she has not kept her own. And I think that it's really interesting that she pointed that out, especially in the context of this this love poem and with this, it seems like someone who's taking time to love herself, to indulge in a relationship who society wouldn't expect her to do that. And so I loved that, that image of keeping, keeping our own vineyard, you know, that's just, that really stuck with me. And I've also been reading the Psalms a lot. I find that the voice that they're written in is between one believer talking to God. And I love the way that that feels personal and that people in the Psalms were setting aside a time, setting aside setting time aside to um, tell the Lord that they were having a hard time with something or to say like these people are really coming at me from all sides and I need your help. So that's been another sort of Old Testament model that I have found very helpful. So yeah, I think the scripture gives us a lot of foundation for this. It really does. And I think, you know, to speak to the more blessed to give than to receive I think context is very important to that verse. I've heard that verse used to drive people to burnout and to sort of trust God's economy that it'll all work out. But I think that 
first of all, I think that verse is talking about literal giving of financial resources. You know, Paul spent a lot of his life taking up a collection for the churches that were poor in Jerusalem. And he's literally talking about asking people to give sacrificially, you know, for the poor. And so I think that's significant. But I think there's also, like you said, a lot of models for not doing that in the scripture, for not giving until you're completely depleted, but to in fact take time to restore and refresh. I had a spiritual director once who, when I was experiencing a period of really terrible burnout, I was in seminary, I was working full time, I was trying to maintain a social life and serve in my church. It was just too much for too long. And he gave me a picture of like a, you know, a saucer with a teacup on top of it and water being poured into the teacup and the water overflowing and filling the saucer, you know, and then filling the saucer and then overflowing onto the table. And he said, you know, when we are full, then you're giving out of sort of an abundance that you have. But when you're depleted, like when the cup is empty and you're still trying to give out, then it becomes like harmful to you to continue to give because there isn't any care for you being taken. And so that picture has always stuck with me when I'm tempted because I'm an extrovert. So I'm tempted to overcommit to things and to do too much. But I always consider that image, you know, of what is God actually engaging me to do and what am I actually being driven by my own unhealthy desires to do and what is the best decision for my own well-being and self-care. Right, right. I really like the idea of having an image to kind of go to in your head. I think that's that's fantastic and that makes so much sense. For myself, I think I try to remind myself to be a Mary and not a Martha sometimes, you know. That's another place where Jesus said directly, the most important thing that you can do right now is sit and just be with me. And, you know, that shows that this idea that we need to be doing and working to have value to take up space is actually really ancient. Um, I tend to think it's something that women experience. I'm sure that men experience it maybe in ways that I don't understand. But as far as being caretakers, that's something that I think is really ingrained into girls and women specifically that makes us need to take this self-care time. And I think especially Women of color, people of color in general, need to be really cognizant of not letting themselves get depleted. Yes, I agree. I think there is like a, I mean, self-care is needed for everyone. Everyone needs it. But I think there is a way in which people of color really need to care for themselves because they live in a world where there's a lot of stressors, a lot of systems of oppression. You know, there's covert racism, There's overt racism, there's sexism, if you're a woman, there's, you know, microaggressions, which if you don't know what that is, it's like, you know, sort of little things that people say to you every day. Like when I get asked if I know how to salsa dance because I'm a brown Latina, for example, (laughs) certain, you know, assumptions are made about, about you based on the way you look. And sometimes the questions are really just they're hard to take, you know, and I, I've heard uh, a friend on Twitter, Jorge Rodriguez, he calls it, uh, microaggressions are like being killed slowly with tiny pebbles. 
And so, you know, like one little pebble doesn't do a lot of damage, but lots of little pebbles do a lot of damage. Right. And think about how torturous that image is being killed slowly by pebbles. That really relates to the language of uh, spirit death that I've read about a little bit from some Black women scholars. The same thing. For for me, the quintessential example is being followed in the store. It's always in the makeup section. I had another friend recently, a Black woman, who felt that someone was watching her in the makeup section, and she actually struck up a conversation with the person and, you know, asked like, oh, why are you sticking so close to me? And it, 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 that was a funny story in and of itself. I don't know that I could ever, ever do that as gracefully as she did. <laughs> but, um, you know, being followed in the store, that sort of thing. You know, I think for a lot of the black men in my life, I've heard about people locking the car door when they when they walk by or, you know, choosing not to get on an elevator alone with them. These little little things just they get to you and. I always wonder what it would be like or how freeing it would be if I did not have to deal with these sort of things or, you know, if we didn't have to deal with these sort of things, um, how much healthier would I be? Because it is this this slow, needling, little injury, little death. And the, that's the other thing is that it doesn't feel legitimate sometimes or that people will try to point out that it's legitimate. Why are you being so thin-skinned? about being hit with the pebble when it's the millionth pebble, <laughs> you know, and that's really the issue. Right. Yeah. And that, and that they don't see that. So it just seems like you're making a big deal out of nothing. And, you know, I had that experience when I lived in LA, I can't tell you how many times, you know, people would assume I was like uh, a maid or uh, the janitorial staff at the office. Oh, gosh. <laughs> or, you know, I was with uh, some white friends once and I was holding their baby and they introduced me as their friend, but the person asked me how long I'd been their nanny, you know. And so, yeah, it seems like if it was just one time that those kind of things happen to you as a person of color, you know, or someone asking me if I'm illegal or if my family is, you know. So those kinds of things add up and they just are very, especially I think if you're a consciously, you know, woke person, you know, there are, I think it's important to say this, there are people of color who, you know, tell me, oh, they don't experience any of these things. And, and it could be that they're just not awake to them. They're not aware to them, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but if you're conscious of them, you know, there's a great quote by James Baldwin. It says, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage all the time. I think when you are awake and aware, it can be harder to be in the world because then you see these things. I mean, and just to illustrate, like I was thinking about this last night as I was thinking about this time that you and I were going to spend recording and, you know, I've thought a lot about representation and we did our last podcast episode on that and you know there's something in me now that when I watch a show and there's no people of color or they're just relegated to like minor roles or stereotypical roles like it really bothers me it really grates against me you know when I'm in a circle with a lot of white feminist women who don't care or are not aware about intersectionality you know, about the fact that we have intersecting identities. If you're a, a black woman, life is harder than if you're a white woman because you have two identities, you know, that make you vulnerable. And 
I, it's hard for me to be in those circles now. And now that I'm awake, now that I'm aware. And so I think that's another layer that for people of color that are involved in justice work and care about justice work, it's another layer of sort of anger and another thing that you need to deal with to be well. Oh, I totally, totally agree that when you are aware that there is a real need to be careful. And I see that with some of the higher profile social justice workers on uh, social media, that if they take a moment to tweet about something trivial, like a reality TV show, someone will inevitably say, you know, why are you tweeting about this when this terrible thing is happening in your city? Um, And I think I've seen some people have some little emotional sort of reactions based on the work that they do and the work they're doing is so valuable and we're all better for it. But you just have to be really careful when you inundate yourself with too much stuff. You know, it's just, I, that reminds me of when I was a kid and when you, when I was in more of a conservative church circle that they're always talking about, be careful what you feed yourself spiritually. And they're usually talking about smut or, (laughs) you know, something that the the, secular films. Exactly. Exactly. But I think that for me, this is the stuff that I need to be careful about what I'm feeding myself because, you know, in graphic images, I've tried really hard to avoid most of the videos of shootings that have gone on, especially the one with Tamir Rice, the 12 year old boy. I've I have tried to avoid that and I hope I don't see it because I'm afraid of, you know, what that will will do to me emotionally, especially as a parent. And there was one video, the autoplay feature on Facebook now, were just being inundated with images. There was this autoplay of one of the police shootings that happened and I saw it without knowing it was coming and it really just put me in a bad place for days. And seeing seeing death, it's traumatic no matter what. And seeing black death when I know that race is a factor in these things, it just it it really cuts. It really hurts. Yeah, those I agree. I've disabled the autoplay for the same reason that I don't want to see that. And I'm careful when I hear on Twitter or Facebook that there's a recording of a violent incident against a person of color or really anyone I just don't I don't want to see that and it's for the same reason I feel like I have limits and I can't handle those things and you know we live in the digital age and so we have to do what we can to be able to avoid things that are triggering and upsetting like that and and I'm with you there I think it's the videos are hard for me and sometimes the stories hard for me you know engaging that all the time and so yeah for sure and I think on top of all of these things there's just the stressors of everyday life that everyone has right and so so I think there is extra care that people of color should take because of the world that we live in you know it's racist it's sexist it's xenophobic it's unjust and so we have to do what we can to be well. And so what are some of the things that you think are, or that you do to take care of yourself? 
for me, time is a big part of self-care. Just taking time to say this is my time to either do what I want to do or do nothing at all. And I think for a lot of us, if you have roommates, if you have family or children in the house, we just get caught up with the fact that we do live communally. And sometimes it's hardest to say to people we love, okay, I'm going to go shut myself in now. Please don't bother me for an hour. But that's really something that I love to do, taking time just to be quiet, to be with myself, to read. I like taking a bath, a hot bath. I know that's really kind of stereotypical, like the Calgon take me away type thing. <laughs> but I think, you know, kind of taking more time, you know, like, you know, we, we get in the shower every day to get ready to go versus taking time to really just be and enjoy taking up space and being in my own space. Um, that's really, really good for me. How about you? What are some of the things that you like to do? Well, I think for me, on sort of a abstract level, you know, I lived for a lot of years in a sort of denial both within myself and coming externally that there's the world's really that bad that it's you know um so i think for me part of taking care of myself is sort of naming injustices which doesn't sound like self-care except it keeps me from feeling like okay i'm not going crazy these things are real and they're happening in the world and so sometimes just naming things like this happened to me and this was wrong it was racist or it was sexist or or it's just wrong you know it's that's an important thing for me um I feel like I've been gaslighted by the world or something so just right. <laughs> you know just naming it really helps me um I also do take um breaks from social media um I have a really great um, application on my computer and phone called cold turkey it's really great it's free <laughs> and okay. and you can block all social media for whatever amount of time you want you know and you know i am not against social media clearly i'm very active on social media but i need breaks from learning about more injustices from videos you know, you write something about justice, you know, you do a lot of writing, I do some writing too, and inevitably there's trolls coming forth to, um, you know, attack you, or, you know, recently there's all these like white supremacist boldness on Twitter, and I just need a break from that, from people that are questioning my very humanity and right to exist in the world. And so I find that taking mindful breaks for a time from social media really helps me. And also, you know, honestly, uh, exercise has been great for me. And then things like cooking. I really enjoy cooking. I find it very soothing to focus on ingredients and, you know, a procedure <laughs> for doing something. It really helps me a lot. And so those are some of the things that I try to do. Journaling, um, like prayer through journaling, has also helped me a lot to process my thoughts and just be calm and at peace. So those are some of the things that I've done to, to try to take care of myself, especially as I've been engaging more and more 
in the work of justice. Hmm. And one thing that um, I thought of while you were talking about sort of protecting ourselves from trolls and attacks and things, things like that, because it really is letting abusive people into your space. We live in a world now that we have such virtual space, but you know, if someone said something racist to me in a bar or at school or something like that, you know, it would hurt me. But then when you come onto my Twitter page or you leave a comment on something that I wrote, it still is invading my thinking time, my thinking space. And so, you know, I had a comment yesterday from the Women in Theology blog um, that was just appalling. And I was just like, delete. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think recognizing that you don't have to engage. I think sometimes people feel that there's this responsibility um, to be much to be a mature adult that you have to engage. But I just don't buy into that. I don't think that's always true. And I think especially when you're dealing with abusive people and trolls, you know, it's one thing if you choose to interact with someone who's, you know, being humane <laughs> uh, versus some of these trolls. I'm I'm fast with the block finger. I have no issue with that. And um, I think on the flip side, it's important to surround yourself with affirming people with a community that's positive, with people who get it and you don't always have to explain. I think that's something that as I've gotten older, I felt more comfortable allowing myself to do. I, um, When I was younger in school and in college, most of my friends were usually white. I didn't have a lot of black friends. And, you know, that makes it difficult to a certain extent. I don't even think I realized it then that I couldn't always talk freely. Or if I said something while I might get sympathy, I might not get real empathy. And so for myself, like-minded people and allowing myself to be sort of enveloped in, in black spaces, giving myself that permission is really important. And I know, I, and I immediately get defensive when I say that because people will say, oh, well, you're allowed to say that you want to envelop yourself in blackness and other people, if you say that you want to envelop yourself in whiteness, that that's racist but you know what you know my response to that is well would you like to trade you know would you like to take on what i'm dealing with <laughs> yeah that's a great response definitely yeah i i think what you're saying is very true i have found that um you know i had i have these experiences that are like <laughs> parallel but so different in the way that they impact me and um you know and one of them is i'm part of this uh, Facebook group that's rather large that's about um, egalitarian relationships within the church and affirming women in leadership and I find it so frustrating in that group that you know they'll take on any any kind of like crazy meme out there that somebody published about how you know women should be submissive <laughs> and men need to dominate like they'll discuss this thread for like days but if you put on a very thoughtful article, you know, that's about the way that single black women, you know, deal in the world and what they face, it's like crickets. Nobody cares. Nobody engages. And mm. and I finally decided last night, you know, I just need to leave that community because as much as I care about gender equality in and outside the church, this group is not good for me because they don't they only want to acknowledge one of my identities you know that that of being a woman and they really don't see or care about 
anything else. And so, so yeah, I had to just make that decision for my, for my well-being, for my self-care. But on the other hand, I have found a very positive and affirming community, like when we engage in a Slate Speak discussion on Twitter. So this is a Twitter discussion that happens every Thursday night. And it, there's a lot of people of color that engage in the conversation. And for me, it has become a really safe space that's positive, that is affirming, where I feel like it's just a, a safe place for people of color to just express the truth and not be, but what about this? <laughs> but what about me, you know? Right. So, right. so yeah, <laughs> I, I will wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think one of the things that I've learned to through Slate Speak is this idea of letting ourselves take up space letting ourselves like affirm like who we are you know white supremacy is alive and well and it tells you that that's the only that's the epitome of beauty of great ideas right (laughs) Of, of good writing right and so i think affirming and acknowledging our beauty as people of color our gifts our contributions I think all of that is so good for our souls. You know, I I had an experience for years that I didn't understand where, you know, white men would befriend me, but they wouldn't befriend like white women my age the same way. And I just thought it's because, oh, they like me as a person, you know, like they enjoy being around me and this is great, you know, I'm a likable person. Even though I'm not like a huge people pleaser, this pleased me. And then I, I discovered over time that really they were treating me like sort of the safe girl because I was a person of color or I looked a certain way or had certain features that they were thinking of me as a safe person to be with that they wouldn't be attracted to. And when I realized that and that that's why that kept happening, it was so hurtful and so painful to me. And it's, it doesn't sound like a like a really, really horrible thing. I recognize there's the worst things that happen in the world, but it was so, um, it really took away from my sense of self and my value as a person. Mm. And I made a decision, you know, that I needed to be in more spaces with people of color and I needed to be in spaces where people affirmed my identity as a woman, as a Latina, as an immigrant, um, all the identities that I own. And so I think that too, part of like allowing ourselves to take up space, being with those who also affirm who we are. Yeah. And one of my favorite things about the Slate Speak community is actually the way that the white people engage. It gives me some sense of relief that this sort of monolith that we call whiteness, white supremacy, that causes so much harm, it's not necessary to be in every white person. Um, it sort of gives me hope, and it makes me happy that there are people that I think are really mindful about the way that they engage with people of color. Like you said, that it doesn't become about them, or what about me, what about my feelings, that it is just affirming and that they can, you know, recognize where they're coming from, but then also be very affirming to people of color or women or queer people or whatever it may be. So I do find that these sort of, you know, self-created spaces 
uh, for people of color and with white people. I think that there's a really big value in that because sometimes I'll get a little bit down. Like, why, why does the world hate us so much? <laughs> and, you know, to see that it's not, it's not intrinsic and that there are people who are, um, you know, my siblings in Christ who are not like that. That's true. That is a very great thing about that. And I love, too, that the people, the white people that are part of Slate Speak, they do a great job of calling out other white people. They don't ask people of color to teach white people, you know, about justice or, or, or share their experiences, but they take that role on themselves, like, we're going to take care of raising better white people in our group. Right. <laughs> and I, I really appreciate that of not, you know, having to explain to someone why my struggles or why my humanity is worth defending. Right. You know, it's a, so yeah, I agree. I agree with you. That Slate Speak group has been very healing and very encouraging for a lot of different reasons. And it's also been a great place to just connect with other people of color working in justice and, and not feeling so alone. Yeah, I, I agree because I think that in church circles and Christian circles that there still is a prevailing idea that very conservative right wing ideas are the norm. Whether or not that's true, I think that the the face of American Christianity is, you know, very conservative and very kind of one party leaning to the right. And I like that this shows me that there are people who are um, embracing inclusive ideals and justice and things like this who also are really great disciples who are really great examples of disciples to me that's been huge for me because i think that one of my struggles as a christian has been not wanting to align myself with these people who are very misogynistic or white supremacist or homophobic um i don't want to align myself with those things that have sort of falsely attached themselves to Christianity. So finding like-minded Christians has been huge. Yeah, really, it's part of that community that's positive and affirming. And, and you know, actually, I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but um, like before I met you, I found one of your articles uh, that you wrote for Sojourners on intersectionality. And I believe you were talking about the Canaanite woman or the Syrophoenician woman. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you were talking about the intersections and that Jesus, you know, um, seems to be caught with his compassion down. I think that's that was the term you used. And I posted that article on my Facebook, and what was really great about it is so many of my white friends said, thanks for posting this. You know, I've, I've heard this term intersectionality, but I didn't know what it meant, and this is very clear. Like, I understand now what is meant by, you know, intersectionality and I thought it was so great that they learned this from this article and that you know neither you nor I had to teach them <laughs> right <laughs> oh. you know and uh, and they it was a very positive and and good response but it didn't take anything from you in terms of other of course there's the energy and time that you spent writing it but in terms of like feeling like you're explaining something to someone about <laughs> why this is important and why are these two identities that you own matter. They're just getting right. it from this article, you know, and receiving that knowledge and 
hopefully growing from that. And so, yeah, I think that's a very, very important thing and a very, you know, kind of safe way to engage without feeling depleted. That's that's been very true for me, and that's what I love about writing is um, that I it comes back to that time time and space thing for me that I choose when to write and I choose when to think about certain things that I want to write about versus having it thrust upon me by someone jumping into my mentions who wants to fight. <laughs> so that's what I love about writing is that it's on my time, it's on my terms. And so I think in that way, it's been very therapeutic for me. I'm sure I know you do writing too. So I, I'm sure you feel the same way. Yeah, I feel the same way. It has been very therapeutic, a great way to process what I'm thinking. And, you know, I, I know I see some people engaging in sort of like, you know, the long tweets, a series of tweets that's like 20 tweets long of going through their thinking. I have found that that's not helpful to me that I really need to sit down and write a piece about something, you know, I'm thinking about. And, you know, right now I'm writing about this article on immigration and standing in the gap and being aware of stories and connected to people um, that are immigrants, that are undocumented, that are refugees. And it's, I just can't process my thoughts on social media. I need the writing. And to me, the fact that I met people like you who were writing, who were people of color, you know, I just didn't have those models for a long time. And it, to me, that's been an encouraging thing that there are so many people of color that I have met on Twitter and through Slatespeak that write about their experiences, that write about justice, that write about their experience with faith. And so that has been a sort of, sort of a spiritual discipline of writing and processing and doing some kind of narrative therapy, I guess, you know, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I think that these are all really great things. I know some people do, you know, like meditation and exercise, yoga, therapy. There are all kinds of different ways. And I think this is why self-care is very individualized, you know. I have a friend who goes running five miles and that's her way of processing and taking care of herself and she feels great. Even, you know, just the thought of doing that is extremely stressful to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> me <too. laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's something that I, I think each individual needs to consider. What is life giving to me? What will replenish my soul? What will make me feel refreshed and restored and ready to engage in the fight? Yeah, I like that. I like that. And for me, it's funny, since the election and during the stress of the holidays and finishing my book, I think I've done a good job of that with what I've been choosing to watch on TV and just to use that as a kind of guilty pleasure escape type time. I've been rewatching all of Downton Abbey. I've been binging it, which is, you know, pretty funny, like this cast that has no diversity, but <laughs> it's just like you know, nice to look at the clothes and to, to just have the escape and that sort of thing. So I've been rewatching that and it actually really still holds up the second time. I got myself an HBO Now membership so I could finally watch Insecure with Issa Rae. And that has been just life-giving. It is such a good show. I watched her when she was on YouTube doing Awkward Black Girl, which was she was producing herself and was so funny and so good. And so seeing her with the HBO production has just been fantastic. And I love that it's a cast with people of color 
and it's not about race it's about their love lives and their friendships and you know sort of like all of that sex in the city friends type stuff that mainstream culture has had thrust upon them where there's no people of color so insecure with Issa Rae has just been fantastic and um I also have been listening to Childish Gambino's new album um Donald Glover the actor raps under Childish Gambino and you know he's been hit or miss for me in the past to be quite honest but this latest album of his I feel that he's really just found his sound and come into his own it's this really kind of funky old school soulful um thing and it's got a lot of blackness to it and I sort of feel that this album is a product of maybe him being in the same kind of headspace that you and I have been in you know whereas I'm writing I think that this album is maybe the product of that I also felt like that about uh Solange's album or at least that those are the thoughts that I'm putting into the heads of these celebrities who I do not know What have you been doing? What have, have you been watching anything or reading anything interesting? I have actually. So um, I, I'm reading a book by um, the woman who wrote Gilead. What is her name? <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't remember. But anyway, the book is called Housekeeping. And, you know, her writing is just really beautiful. And it's just really well done. I, it's just very very poetic kind of writing you know you can tell there was a lot of thought into the words and the images and I really enjoy beautiful writing I'm I'm a sucker for that it's my sentimental streak I think so um so I've really been enjoying that and sort of like reading it slowly kind of reminds me of when I read you know Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison which is like my favorite book of all time and I remember just slowing down toward the end because I'm like, this is so beautiful. I just want to enjoy it as long as possible. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is <laughs> this book, Housekeeping, um, that I've been reading. I think it's Marianne Williamson. Is that her name? No, it's uh, Marilyn Robinson. Marilyn Robinson. Yes. Marilyn Robinson. There is a Marianne Williamson. Who's a poet, she writes, right? She's a she poet. writes different stuff. Yeah, she writes okay. spiritual, memoir type stuff oh okay 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 marilyn robinson marilyn robinson yes housekeeping so that has been a really good read i just ordered another book uh called mujerista theology which i've been meaning to read for a long time so hopefully i'll get started on that soon and um and i've been watching oddly enough i am not a superhero comic book person at all at all (laughs) but i've been watching (laughs) the flash on netflix which it's a cw series you know <laughs> okay and i remember when this came out that it was well reviewed on npr and i remember being really surprised by that and so i started watching it just kind of on a whim something to watch over the holiday when i had so much free time can i just tell you i love it it's like a a truly diverse cast you know and like all the characters are well rounded and known and they made some significant changes to the story. For one, the Flash's love interest is a black woman, not, you know, in the comic book, apparently it was a white woman with the same name. And so uh, so I've really been enjoying that because to me, it's been a great model too of really the way things should work in the church, the fact that you have this team of people because they sort of diverge from 
the comic book in that he's not just a hero. He really can't do it without the team. They all work together. Wow. And and women save themselves. They're not waiting for saviors. And I mean, of course, it's comic book, multiverse, fantasy kind of stuff, but really well done. I've just enjoyed it a lot. Even like vulnerable masculinity that's healthy. And I just, yeah, <laughs> it's really that's really cool. I like it when something uh, sometimes gets noticed or resurrected after it was popular once before, after it was popular in a different um, version or franchise or something like that. So The Flash. And I do tend to like the comic book stuff, so I will check that one out. Yeah, check it out if you can. And, and I do want to check out Insecure. I've heard great things about it, and I would really like to see it because it just sounds like a great, great show. And I like the idea of the women of color, sex in the city. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm just so happy with her success. Like, you know, I think there's this generation of people that we watched come up on the internet. Like, Awesomely Lovey, the blogger, like, had her huge book this year, I'm Judging You. And these people that were just kind of internet people for a while that now have really made it to the mainstream, that, that just makes me thrilled for them. So... Yeah, it really is. And one thing I'm really looking forward to, too, is the movie Hidden Figures. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, I've heard great things about this film. And this is like a, you know, little known piece of history for me. And so I'm excited to see it's about the the black women, not NASA scientists, right? Right. And it's a story that I know nothing about. I had not heard anything about this. So, you know, it really will be teachable thing for me and it's funny my husband has been really concerned about what it's rated and if it's appropriate for us to take our daughter which we think it is it's pg and so we'll probably take her you know if i let her watch pitch, pitch perfect i should let her watch this <laughs> but i'm really looking forward to seeing with my family and that she will learn this story at a much younger age than i'm learning the story we're going to learn it together but that just it looks so fun and all three of the actresses that are featured in that are so good. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, it's really exciting. So, anyway, find us on Twitter and let us know what you do for self-care and what you're viewing, listening to, or reading. You can find me, Karen, at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. And you can find me at Court Rhapsody. And thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Dovetail Podcast, a place where Christian faith, justice, and culture come together from the perspective of women of color. Or at least just me and Karen. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. See you next time. See you next time.